Hello, and welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. This is a very special listener Q&A episode. Rather than focusing on one creative genius, we will instead be turning the spotlight on you and your questions. So let's get right into it. There's a lot of thought-provoking questions that you guys have asked me. These questions have come in from various sources, social media like Instagram and Twitter, and my Patreon, which is at patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. And due to the quality of these questions, it just goes to show you Creative Codex is filled with an audience of deep thinkers, and I'm proud to have your support. As a new twist to an old format, I have chosen three of the questions and recorded them as video answers, which I posted to the Creative Codex YouTube channel, and you can watch those there. These are three questions that do not appear in this audio version episode, so simply go to YouTube and type in Creative Codex, and you can enjoy watching me wrestle through answering those uh, in video. Those questions include, how do you cure writer's block? Is there something about the creative pursuit that leaves people at odds with society? And can you make a piece of music out of the metrics and proportions of an Emily Dickinson poem? Yeah, wild stuff. And in that last one, I actually attempt to, using a 20th century classical music strategy called a note matrix. So check that out on our Creative Codex YouTube channel. And as it is customary to say among YouTubers, like and subscribe. Some of the questions we will be covering on this episode include, how do you decide on a creative figure for your next episode? Could you discuss Austin Osman Spare and his theory that art and magic are somehow linked? Why do more intelligent people tend to be atheists? Ooh, wow. How closely do you think mastery is related to reclusiveness? And quite a few more. So I'll try my best, but I don't make any promises. Let's get into it. First question. The first question comes to us from Patreon supporter Logan Kshivitsky, who says, Hello, MJ. I have a question for your upcoming Q&A, although I'm not sure if it's been asked before in a previous Q&A, or if you've spoken on this before, my question is, how do you decide on a creative figure to commit your next episode of Creative Codex to? Specifically, what qualifies a person as episode-worthy to you besides them being a creative genius? And also, if you have a backlog of creative geniuses to cover, how do you select which one to approach next? Great question. So, because any of these episodes takes a substantial amount of time. You know, time researching, time gathering materials, reading biographies, and uh, even primary sources. That's an important element to me, to read the journals or diaries or writings of these figures uh, as they were, as they wrote them, so you see the workings of their mind. So because that takes a substantial amount of time, I don't just respond to the quality of the work of a specific creative figure. Because, honestly, there's countless figures one could cover if you're just responding to the quality of the work. 
for this specific show, I respond to a story. I look at these figures, I look at the details of their life, I see what kind of narratives are playing out from their time period they lived in to their family or acquaintances or romantic interests or challenges that they faced throughout their life. And as you look at those details, a narrative, it begins to emerge. And that's really what excites me. When, once I start to see that there's a story to be told here, and quite often a story that uh, quite closely relates with an element of the creative process, like of course in Emily Dickinson's case, that had to do with solitude. The theme was solitude and the benefits of solitude to the creative process, right? In an episode like the one about Robert Johnson, part of the theme there was the idea that a great creative mind has to be engaged with the medium and with the culture of that medium of their time. And then that's how they achieve mastery and, and create significant works, because those works aren't created in a vacuum. They're created within the context of a culture and the medium's uh, norms, right? So Robert Johnson, being a blues musician, was responding to and following certain norms of the blues. So overall, that's really a driving force, is finding a narrative that can be told and hopefully, you know, in a compelling, thought-provoking way. But even more broadly than that, I'm noticing uh, within the last few months that something else is emerging too, and it's, and it's worth mentioning. And it's this idea that there's not just these individual stories of these creative figures, but even more broadly, as I'm starting to cover figures from uh, different centuries, you know, if we started with Leonardo da Vinci in the 1400s, and uh, the first episode was about, you know, cavemen doing cave paintings, and then the recent episodes uh, in more recent times of the 20th century, I start to realize that what's actually happening is in Creative Codex, we're putting together the story of creativity. It's not just a podcast about individual creatives and the stories of their lives. Some of it is in individual episodes. But as you take a bird's eye view and, and see them in totality, this is the story of creativity itself. And now that as a theme, as an umbrella for the work, that really drives me forward. And that excites me. So that's partially how those decisions are made. I hope that makes sense. Thank you. Our next question comes from Patreon supporter Blake Huggins. Blake writes, Hey, could you discuss Austin Osman's spare and some of his concepts and ideas about art? My brother is always going on about him. I've looked into some of his stuff. He seems like an interesting fellow. Your podcast is the best. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Blake. So for those who aren't familiar with this artist, Austin Osman Spare, he was both an, an occultist and an artist in the late 1800s into the early 1900s uh, in England. And a really curious fellow. There's quite a lot that can be said about him, and I hope to one day do an episode or two about Austin Osman Spare, just because of this curious link that you see in his work and his philosophy between magic and art. One curious strategy he developed was called automatic drawing, where he would sit down late at night and just let his hand start moving 
and without trying to influence it, uh, try to see what would happen. In a sense, sometimes it may have just been the hand practicing some of the motions it's familiar with, but in other times, he claims that his hand and his body, when it was opened as a channel, was able to channel through spirits, demons, and anything that may have been moving through the atmosphere or, in occult terms, the astral near him. And you can see some of these illustrations of his that uh, at first look like sketches, and then you're looking at them, and there's like demonic faces or fantastical creatures or uh, one face that's kind of morphed and linked into another as if the way you would imagine perhaps a spirit is being linked with another spirit or just the, the, the morphing quality of an entity. It's, it's pretty curious stuff. And also his uh, work in the occult uh, was pretty influential down the line. His theory on creating sigils and how to charge a sigil and such was, was pretty influential later on for things like chaos magic. So quite a fascinating guy. And I look forward to kind of diving further into him. So thank you for mentioning him. I'm going to definitely uh, put him a little higher on the list of future Creative Codex episodes. Now, one final thing I'll, I'll say about this curious link between art and magic. I think he was right. I think there is something there. And it's one of the beautiful mysteries about creative work. All creative work is magic. Think about it. You are using illusions to summon an emotional, psychological, or spiritual response. And what could be more magical than that? Thank you for your question, Blake. Our next question comes from Patreon supporter James Schenner, who asks, What are your thoughts on NFTs and or other new developments in the digital world and the consequences for art and for artists? both in terms of creativity and commerce. Yeah, great timely question. Uh, and NFT is an acronym, which means non-fungible token. And it is related to a new development specifically in digital art and the art collection industry that allows uh, a work of digital art to be guaranteed as singular and therefore it becomes collectible and is, you're able to put it onto the art market for sale and collection. This is done partially through blockchain technology, uh, which is very technical and, you know, um, I certainly don't know enough about it. I just know the basic surface level details. But in terms of the possible implications of this, they're really quite fascinating. I personally have nothing against it. I'm just kind of amazed that it's picked up steam so quickly in this last month to the point where I just got a notification on my phone about some of this kind of art news. And one of the works of the artist Beeple sold for $60 million just very recently. And it was, again, one of these NFT-type situations where it's a digital work and somebody out there with more money than they know what to do with bought this thing for $60 million. So it's definitely a curious new development in general in the art industry and for digital artists to kind of feel maybe inspired by and encouraged that something is moving in an interesting direction to include digital artists in the larger scope of art collection. 
part of what this whole NFT thing is and, and this recent fascination with it is that it's a new development and no one really knows what's going to happen with it, you know, how the chips are going to fall within six months to a year. But one thing is clear that as a society, even just as a global species, we seem to be moving more and more into the virtual space, right? Especially within this last year, as everyone is getting even more used to the idea that we can have meaningful interactions completely in our technology. And so it's, it can be a little bit of a worrying thing to people who aren't as into technology as some of us are. But there's really no putting the genie back in the bottle at this point, right? We might as well see what is the best that we can make of it. And similarly with NFTs, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. It seems like that type of art collection is here to stay, for better or worse. And we'll just watch it. We'll see how it goes. I'm curious especially about uh, the implications for works that are digital but are interactive, like video games. I can't wait for the moment, and it'll probably happen you know, pretty soon, that someone creates a video game that they present as a work of art, but that is presented with this NFT blockchain technology where only one person can truly own it and someone is going to buy it to collect it um, and thereby the, the domino effect there that I kind of like to think about is that it will raise the status of video games a little bit more in the general popular dialogue as a form of art too. So that's pretty neat. I'm kind of looking forward to see how that develops too. Thank you for your question, James. Our next question comes from my friend Ozzy, who asks, Why do more intelligent people tend to be atheistic? This is a question I'd like you to answer. As much as I know, genius people don't show interests in religions. Oh boy. <laughs> You're trying to get me in trouble here, Ozzy. I would try to stumble my way through an answer that doesn't offend too many people, but at the same time, I think there's something there. I think there's something we should try to understand about what this kind of thing implies. So let's dive right in. I found a study that has to do with just that, and it was published in Frontiers in Psychology in December of 2017. So the paper and the study is called The Negative Relationship between reasoning and religiosity is underpinned by a bias for intuitive responses, specifically when intuition and logic are in conflict. Yeah, it's quite a title, as, as these papers uh, usually are, but we'll explain it in more detail. So it was published by Richard E. Dawes and Adam Hampshire. Some of the introduction to the paper says, It is well established that religiosity correlates inversely with intelligence. A prominent hypothesis states that this correlation reflects behavioral biases toward intuitive problem-solving, which causes errors when intuition conflicts with reasoning. We tested predictions of this hypothesis by analyzing data from two large-scale internet cohort studies. Uh, the combined amount of people who participated were 63,235. We report that atheists surpass religious individuals in terms of reasoning, but not working memory performance. 
The religiosity effect is robust across socio-demographic factors, including age, education, and country of origin. It varies significantly across religions, and this co-occurs with substantial cross-group differences in religious dogmatism. So, my interpretation of this, from just reading some of the results, is that in this kind of test scenario, when a specific problem is presented that can be answered either with critical reasoning or intuition, people who associate with being religious tend to rely more often on intuition in those situations, for better or worse, right? Maybe sometimes they'll still get the right answer, but the people who don't associate themselves with being religious, they tend to rely on their critical reasoning and they may get the answer right more often. The paper further continues, religious fundamentalism has also shown modest positive correlations with life satisfaction and negative correlations with cognitive flexibility and openness, unquote. And that's a curious one too. That's something to consider. So <laughs> religious people tend to be more satisfied with life. That's not a bad thing, right? So that's a little thought-provoking. Now, in my own opinion, just having been raised Roman Catholic, which I no longer participate in, but I kind of get a sense for what it is to be raised in an organized religion, I would say that most religions, they discourage critical thinking, right? And that's one of these curious qualities that maybe uh, makes people averse to pursuing a religion or seeing what, what they have to offer, despite the fact that, as was stated in the paper, there are very positive effects of being part of a religion. And the idea that religions in general discourage critical thinking, of course not all, but a lot of the major ones, probably pushes away people who are scientifically minded, right? But curiously, that, that doesn't mean that those people don't believe in a god or in a form of divinity. Because when we look at figures like Carl Jung, for example, or Khalil Gibran, or the Sufi poet Rumi, or you know many other historical figures, we, we see people with an incredible intellect who are wrestling with the concept of divinity and of even religion that they participate in. So I don't think it's that easy to write off by saying atheists being uh, non-believers of God are more intelligent than people who believe in God. I think the problem is actually religion. And as the paper says, religiosity, right? When you're part of an organized group that discourages you from engaging a thorough analysis of your environment, then you, you fall into a habit, right? You fall into a thinking habit where you're not being critical of your environment and the information you're taking in and, and the problem solving that goes with day-to-day -day life. I think that's the distinction we should think about. And as a closing thought, I would say Albert Einstein said that he does not believe in personal gods, but he does believe in the god of Spinoza. And that's a curious one and maybe unexpected for some people. But thank you for your question. I think I did okay there. <laughs> I think I, I stepped on some toes, but I supported it with some knowledge and gave positives and negatives, right? Thank you.
All right, on to the next question. Hopefully this one's a softball question, not a question about softball, of course. I'd do even worse with that. So this one comes from Patreon supporter Michael Thompson, who says, Hello, sir. First, let me express my newfound fandom for your podcast. Totally taken aback by your content, production quality, tone, cadence, and connection to your subject material to create an intimately immersive experience. Thank you, Michael. He goes on. Now that that's out of the way, here's a question about dealing with procrastination. Being a semi-professional musician, my first true love for the last 25-ish years, and an ultimate curious mind, I've grown a love for many other creative endeavors, and I have no lack of obsession-worthy ideas. All of my unfinished stalled projects, desired projects, and ongoing mainstays have encouraged an overwhelming and often paralyzing challenge. With too many pokers in the fire, I find these days that I'm neglecting more than I'm progressing on. I'm wondering if I've developed some midlife onset ADD or something. In your research, have you found any inspiring examples of overcoming this sort of da Vinci lust, jack of all trades restlessness I've been struggling with for several years now? The old adage, don't half-ass many things, whole-ass one thing, truly haunts me despite any accomplishments. Sorry for the long-windedness. Cheers. Thank you for that question, Mike. I think that's something that a lot of creatives struggle with. Because once you start engaging the creative process, you realize that it's not isolated to one medium. It's a process that's, that's taking in all the information around you and can often want to express itself outward in a variety of mediums. And I think that's important to remember that in, culturally we have this romantic notion of you know, the artist as someone who only participates and masters one medium and sticks to that for their, their entire life. And there's certainly examples of that. I mean, you look at somebody like Stephen King, who is a writer, and he's a writer's writer. But I wouldn't be surprised if we found out that he participated in some other mediums, too, that maybe you know his work is known in or that he doesn't publicly share. But I wouldn't be surprised if he explores those, dabbles in them, perhaps. I think personally, in my own life, I have certainly spread myself out into other mediums, too. And so I would say I have one that my focus is on, that throughout the years I've spent the most hours developing, which is music, and specifically music composition, so writing music. Now, of course, you can say, well, how the hell does that match up with uh, creating a podcast? Uh, th that's another topic entirely, and, and I think they kind of match up pretty well. You know, you're thinking structurally, you're thinking about um, emotional content. There's, there's a lot there that, that curiously overlaps. So in terms of all these other mediums, though, you know, I also participate in illustration and picked up painting and dabble in photography. And I, and I still really love photography, so I want to I do more of that. And poetry and, and songwriting, you know, there, there's a lot that I've really enjoyed dabbling in, per se, as, as maybe you feel as well. So I think that inclination, I don't think we should discourage that. I think that's actually a beautiful thing. And it's a natural tendency of a creative process that is functioning well, you know? That's actually an indication of a healthy creative process, 
the fact that it, it, it is spreading itself out in those multiple directions. And so don't discourage it. I say, let it, entertain it every once in a while in those ways, because there's often elements of it that overlap with other things you're working on. So you may be working on a poem, and then that inspires an illustration, you know, or vice versa, or any other medium, you know, overlapping with another one. So in that sense, we don't want to discourage it. But there is something to the point of what you're saying, and I think it's a practical point, right? We only have so many years on this earth. So what do we do with that time? How do we divide it in a meaningful way? And focusing on one medium to achieve something great or significant in that medium, it seems like a good idea, practically. So I would give this advice, and this is the advice I tend to follow as well. Focus on mastering one medium, but be open to flirting with proficiency in other mediums. So I've focused for many years on mastering uh, music composition because I, I went to first my undergrad in that direction and then I did grad studies as well, also in music composition. Then after that, I focused for a number of years on music composition by scoring films and, and working in the film industry. So that was the area that I was completely dead set on mastering. Now, whether I've mastered it or not, you know, is regardless. The, the, the point being that I feel I've achieved a, a pretty decent and above average level of proficiency in music composition. But at the same time, you know, my creativity extends outward and, and is open to dabbling with proficiency in these other mediums. So that's my advice, you know, focus on one um, where you feel like you can achieve mastery. Usually the reasoning there is that you have some tendencies already that you were born with. You know, you might have incredibly good fine motor skills, or you might be a very logical thinker, or, you know, any number of things. And the characteristics that you innately have that make you a little better at a certain medium, that's actually a good indication that you'll be able to progress through it a little more smoothly than other people might, you know? So it, it takes some thought, right? Some self-reflection. It also takes some discipline, to tell yourself you're going to focus on one. You know, some motivation that might inform you there too is, is there one medium where you're more likely to make some income from? Because that's a very motivating factor. And at the end of the day, you know, we want to be making some income from our creative work. So you got to take all those things into play. And hopefully that ends up giving you a helpful direction, right? But thank you. I think a lot of creative people a lot more than we talk about are challenged by that kind of situation. It's a gift and it's a curse, right? The gift is that not everybody can do even one creative medium, but you know, as, as, as creatives that are really into it, we can kind of spread out into many. And that, that, that sometimes makes people who aren't very creative kind of jealous, you know, that, uh, oh, it's so easy for him or her, you know. Focus on mastering one medium while flirting with proficiency in other mediums. Thank you for your question. Our next question comes from Josh Smith on Twitter at Josh T. Smith Music, who asks, concerning Carl Jung, more context about what he actually used as educational material to be able to build a tower. 
Yeah. Oh, this is a good kind of like deep cut question that uh, only folks who are already Jungian enthusiasts would ask, right? So for those who might not be aware, Carl Jung, a uh, very famous psychologist who founded the school of thought in psychology called psychoanalysis. We covered him in episodes 13 and 14, I believe that was, and specifically his work called The Red Book, a work of deep self-analysis and a form of a, a spiritual journey that he took in that self-analysis. Check it out if you haven't. It's a very popular episode. It's still bringing in quite a number of listeners consistently into the show just who are looking for Carl Jung's stuff. Now, on, on that topic, curiously, in this last decade, Jungian thought has seen a very interesting resurgence. It's becoming pretty popular, and, and it's attracting people who are genuinely intellectually curious and not just kind of like a fad. So I'm, I'm super happy to see that. I think that's wonderful. I think it's much needed in today's society. But back to the topic at hand, in the last few decades of Carl Jung's life, he felt the need to build a tower. And this kind of eventually became a complex of, I believe, four towers with connecting structures. And it's, it's a crazy idea. And I'm sure to people around him, they thought he maybe was a little off his rocker for even wanting to pursue it because he wasn't known as a builder or, or anything of the sort. Now, the question, of course, remains, how much of it did he design? I'm, I'm assuming quite a significant amount. It was his complete decision-making. As far as how much of it did he build himself or whether it was contracted, I don't know myself. That's, that's not an area of my expertise. And curiously enough, when, when you look through the scholarly work on Jungian thought and, and history, there's not much out there about this specific tower either, on Bollingen Tower which is spelled B-O-L-L-I-N-G-E-N. But there are one or two curious resources that you can follow, which maybe would get you closer to some of the answer that you're looking for. So one is in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, the book, uh, Carl Jung talks quite a bit about Bollingen Tower and the inclination to want to pursue such an endeavor. Uh, here's one quote from there, around page uh, 212. He goes on, Words and paper did not seem real enough to me. To put my fantasies on solid footing, something more was needed. I had to achieve a kind of representation in stone of my innermost thoughts and of the knowledge I had acquired. Put another way, I had to make a confession of faith in stone. That was the beginning of the tower, the house I built for myself at Bolingen. I wanted a room in this tower where I could exist for myself alone. I had in mind what I had seen in Indian houses, in which there is usually an area, though it may be only a corner of a room separated off by a curtain, in which the inhabitants can withdraw. There they can meditate for perhaps a quarter or half an hour, or do yoga exercises. Such an area of retirement is essential in India, where people live crowded very close together." Unquote. So, on that note, I mean, it's a completely fascinating topic, and I understand why you'd be curious about it for many reasons. One other avenue you can pursue, aside from reading those passages in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, is there is something called the Salome Institute, and it exists largely online. So, if you go salomeinstitute.com, you can find them. 
And what they do is that they hold seminars and lectures, and they stream them virtually. And so you can participate as an audience member during these streams, or you can watch past lectures or meetings on their website. So there was one in November of 20, was it November 2020, not that long ago. And the title of that seminar was The Black Books and the Bolingen Tower, Before and After Jung's Red Book. And that discussion was led by Jung's great-grandson, Daniel Bowman. So that's pretty interesting right there. If there is anyone that might have extra knowledge about this subject, that would very likely be his great-grandson, right? And it's curious that they use that as part of the title. So if you go on there, salomeinstitute.com, and just look up uh, the Black Books and the Belingan Tower, uh, you'll, you'll see that come up. Now, what you can do, curiously enough, is you can register for that seminar. But since it's happened already, what you're doing is buying a ticket to view the recording. It's a pretty cool idea. Now, obviously, you can't participate in any Q&A session kind of format, but maybe there'll be a little clues, little breadcrumbs you can follow from something like that. Now, beyond that, there's, there's no clear book specifically about Bolingen Tower either, but I have no doubt that Jungian scholars, being as thorough as they are, uh, someone out there is already working on one, or maybe two are already working on one, and something about it will likely come out within the next few years, because as I said, the interest in Jungian thought um, is kind of at an all-time high. It's really fascinating, and it's fun to see that developing. So hopefully that was useful to you. SalomeInstitute.com, check it out. Thank you, Josh. Our next question comes from Kelly O'Donnell on Twitter, at Kelly O'Donnell. K-E-L-L-E-Y-O-D-O-N-E-L-L. Yeah, you can tell I've had coffee, right? So, she asks a question regarding Emily Dickinson. How do you think she would have felt, scandalized, titillated, if she read Whitman's poetry? I imagine he would have loved hers. I would also be interested in your reflections on posthumous publication without an author's artist's express permission, and in some cases, directly against their stated wishes. Ambiguous for Emily Dickinson's poems, but you could start with Kafka. Great questions. So, how would Emily have felt if she read Whitman's poetry? So, I'll start this by saying, there are a few things I know a lot about. But, there are also a lot of things I know very little about. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm an expert on Walt Whitman and his poetry. I know a few of his works, but I want to give him the respect that is due with an episode of his own sometime in the upcoming future. So, I'm not sure. But if you have some suggestions, recommendations where I can start on some Walt Whitman stuff, please uh, send them along to me, DM me, and I'd love to learn. Now, the other aspects of your question... I think I can kind of wrestle around with a little bit and, and come up with something interesting. So you asked, what would he have thought of her poetry? And I imagine part of that implies if he had known her in person before her work had been published, right? So that kind of brings to mind this other curious issue, which is the framing of a work. There's a great saying in 20th century art that 
the most important part of a painting is the frame. So the reasoning there being when you see a painting and it has a complementary frame or something that kind of draws your attention to it, it's because of the frame that our mind assumes this is a work of art that's meant to be looked at, appreciated, thought about, that without the frame, if you see that same painting somewhere on a street corner in Manhattan and you're walking by on your way, hurrying to catch the next train or get to work, you, you won't see it in the same context, right? The frame being missing makes you assume it's, it's just kind of a random maybe reproduction or a piece of garbage on the street. That comes to mind when we think about the idea of an, an artist presenting, a creative person presenting their work to someone in a very different scenario where perhaps they know each other as acquaintances and knowing how Emily would present her work in the very few instances that she did, she wouldn't present her whole corpus, you know, she, no, she didn't show anyone her fascicles. And that's, I think, part of the issue at hand. So even if she had met maybe someone like a Walt Whitman and they had sat down and, you know, they got along swimmingly, I'm sure, then she would have shown him one of her poems. Would one poem, uh, something like My Life Had Stood a Loaded Gun, would that have been enough to convince him that there was more to her, right? Would that one brilliant poem have been enough to imply the scope of her genius and to imply the, you know, close to 2,000 other poems that she had written? And I don't know. It's a strange question, right? It's all about the framing. It's all about the context. But if she had shown him something like her fascicles, which at that point could have had 800 poems in them, that would be a very different context, right? Seeing a body of work bound together, being able to read them, compare them one to the other, that would be something else entirely. And, and looking at something like that, I don't think anyone can deny the visionary spark in those fascicles. So I imagine that he would have quite appreciated her and her writing. Now, the second part of your question is also a really great loaded topic. The idea about what are the ethics of publishing an artist's work posthumously if they either haven't agreed or specifically requested not to, right? Now, I stand perhaps on a little more controversial stance here, where I'll say that I believe art doesn't belong to the artist. It's not a thing you can own, you know, it's not a property, not to me anyway. In terms of copyright, sure, that's helpful to have. It helps artists make a living, helps creative people make a living and so they're not taken advantage of. But a creative work on its own, it doesn't belong to an artist. And in a sense, it doesn't really belong to anyone. But if it did belong to anyone, it, it belongs to the humanity that it's created in. That brings us to this other very large issue of what is the purpose of art. So it may have had one purpose for the artist when they created it, but it may be an entirely different purpose for an audience engaging it. So the purpose of art in the larger sense may not even be the one that is understood by the artist. And that's a curious distinction there. An artist might create a work that is deeply personal and they may not feel comfortable sharing it with the world. And that's completely understandable, as personal works go. But in most cases, it is those most deeply personal works of art that are often the most compelling, right? 
and those which we as a species can gain the most benefit from. So deeply personal works, they often open up the dialogue toward things like mental health issues or spiritual topics. And even more importantly, deeply personal works also open up the inner world of the viewer to themselves. Meaning when you read, watch, or listen to some creative work that shows someone, an artist, who has interacted with their own inner world in a deep and meaningful way, like Carl Jung's Red Book, this opens doorways in your own inner world that begin to invite you in as well. So in the grand scheme of things, I think there's much more benefit to be gained from publishing and letting an artist's work be freely available to digest by all of humanity, rather than keeping it under lock and key for the sake of etiquette or possibly ethics. There's just so much more benefit to be gained, you know? And Carl Jung's Red Book is a perfect example of that, actually. The fact that he did not publish it, and he did not give any instructions for its publishing, and his estate kept it under lock and key for 50 years, but then once it was finally released, it caused an incredible domino effect of a resurgence of interest in his work, and we're still feeling that effect today, I believe, where even just from an example of my own episodes, the Carl Jung episodes are the ones that are the most listened to, because people on Spotify will search Carl Jung, The Red Book, or search up The Red Book to find more information about it, and they'll be led to my two episodes on it. So it's super interesting topic. Thank you for asking. Our next question comes from Mona Oman on Instagram. That's at M-O-N-A-O-M-A-N. And she asks, How closely do you feel mastery is related to reclusiveness? Also, how do you think Emily would have navigated our world, the 2021 world? Do you think she would have been as prolific? Do you think she would have been capable of manipulating social media to gain steam for her work? Or was her work not meant for this time, her secret brilliance, against all odds of her time and setting, the energy behind her collection of timeless work? I don't think she was meant for this time, but meant to affect this time. I'm so intrigued by the first question. Dolly was a brilliant master of his craft, but he was also a socialite somewhat. So what depth does one need to separate themselves from the world to achieve greatness? It doesn't happen when you have to keep up with the times. It happens when you march to your own time in your own time, right? I also love the connection between mental anguish and creativity. Some cripple by the pressure of expectations once people know your brilliance, some flourish. I almost feel you have to have deep darkness and things holding you back to find your true meaning. We may all have a piece of that, some feeling it more deeply than others and some overwhelmed by emotional states and circumstance that it forces them to harness it into creativity and with that comes all sorts of other things. Emily was a brilliant master who seemed to have a complete and full understanding of the world that was, that would be, with such a mastery that she could manipulate the truth and then translate it into a body of poetry. She must have had the perfect balance of exposure and captivity to be able to understand it all, yet also the time to create it all. Wow, beautifully said. Thank you, Mona. 
So from your first question, perhaps we can start with an exploration of that. How closely do you feel mastery is related to reclusiveness? We'll start by saying solitude is essential to the creative process. But now too much solitude makes you a recluse who is out of touch with the norms of your society, right? How is solitude essential to the creative process? Well, uh, probably 90% of the work that we consume, that usually we really love, that's some kind of creative work, had to have been made in solitude, right? Whether it's writing, painting, poetry, music, so much of this work is done by one person alone in a room where no one else can hear or see them, and then they bring it back out into the world. Of course, there are exceptions to that. There are instances like in a rock band, let's say, where the magic of the final piece of music uh, results from the combined intention of those three, four people getting together and, and doing the best work they can in that moment. So uh, there are those instances. But even in those instances, usually the songwriting was, is partially done or mostly done by one person, and then they have the rest of the band add their touch to it, right? So in the case of, of a band where there's a guitarist songwriter like a Kurt Cobain, he would still write most of those songs in solitude, then bring his uh, half-finished or mostly-finished song to the band and be like, all right, let's see what we can do with this, so kind of workshop it, you know? Dave Grohl adding crazy drums to it, and Chris Novoselic adding a bass line that's, that's complementary to the song or to the guitar part. And so even in that instance where a, a portion of the creativity relies on other people, most of that work is still done by one individual in solitude. So there's definitely a balance, you know, that needs to be adhered to, to be successful in your medium, but also just to be grounded right? Because if you become a hermit completely removed from society, in a sense, you uh, become out of touch with what the norms are of your medium. And if you're removed from society for five years, ten years, what you create, let's say, ten years later, when you haven't been informed by the norms of your medium, is it going to be something brilliant? Or is it going to be something that's so out of context that your time period won't even understand it. Your time period won't even be able to appreciate it for the brilliance it has, right? So it's, it's kind of like a tightrope walk. You need the solitude to work, to create, but you also need that time in your environment of society to, as a feedback loop, learning the norms and where the innovation can take place. And that's part of it. Innovation in any medium relies on an engagement with the, the current state of that medium. I think that's what you're implying too. As far as how Emily would have done in today's world, oh man, would she be on Instagram like as one of these uh, people posting poetry? I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, on the flip side, if Frida Kahlo was around today, I, I think she would be very engaged on social media. It seems like she had that, that kind of temperament and she would likely be taking selfies and such, but also kind of understanding some of her temperament. I don't think she would have tweezered her eyebrows, like, unfortunately, some t-shirts of her and, and little kind of merch that uses her face does. It's really bizarre to me. They'll take her face 
and they'll digitally alter her eyebrows so that they're, they're not connected in the center, like in her most famous paintings and photos she has. It's, it's, it's strangely dishonest, photoshopping a creative genius because of what? So because people who don't know her will think it's weird? I mean, so if they're going to buy the shirt, you have to assume they know who she is, and so they won't care that her eyebrows are connecting. It's just so bizarre to me, and, and uh, I hate it every time I see it. Anyway, though, I, I think you're right that she exists in her time, and she stands out as kind of a pillar of her time uh, because she is so different. You know, part of that is what fascinates us looking back at history. And sometimes that increases the value of creative work that we're looking at because we know it, it was created during a time where that was an exception, right? And in a way that makes that work exceptional. There's also something to say for you know, objective quality. It's clear her work has an objective high level of quality to it. I think I'm sure we agree on that, and it's a fun conversation to have. Thank you. Thank you for asking those questions. And our final question comes from Kirithiga Kumar on Instagram, at K-R-I-X underscore 25. And she asks, How does one begin to understand why what he doesn't like in someone and relate that to his or her own shadow? I've been reading a lot on beginner's shadow work, but I always find it difficult to apply it. I know a few people who I don't like, but I always can't put a finger on why. Ooh, that's an interesting one. So, Kurathiga is talking about something called shadow work, which is a procedure that an individual can do uh, when you're following some of Jung's ideas. And he referred to our shadow as, as a place in our unconscious mind where we have possibly repressed certain elements of ourselves. We've repressed a certain desire, or a certain ambition, or a certain physical inclination. And that can be a positive thing or a negative thing that's been repressed. But in general, it's just something that we've pushed into the background. What your question, I think, is, is implying is this idea that we might see someone or meet someone as an acquaintance and implicitly not like them for some reason. But it's a reason that's unknown to us, perhaps. And whether that is part of our shadow, it's a curious question. I mean, we're pretty complicated, right? The mind is a very complicated place. To say that, that that's always part of a projection of our shadow is probably simplifying it a bit, right? It could be an intuition that we feel about a person. And intuition itself can be an example of our, our subconscious uh, being able to process patterns in a person or in the environment that in the past have resulted in an unpleasant experience, right? So an intuition could be felt as a physiological reaction that um, is telling you not to go down a certain path, not to engage with this person. So that's one element. I mean, another element, you could be projecting onto someone a certain dislike you have for certain traits. As an example, I tend to have less respect for people who lack self-control. Now, that's not a very controversial statement, but I assume it's a reflection of my own discipline. Since I was a teenager and practicing martial arts and such, 
I have I've really kept myself very disciplined. When I want to achieve a goal, you know, I set out the criteria for it, and um, I only let myself slip every once in a while, you know. But otherwise, I, I kind of, you know, lay out my day, I lay out my week, and I stay up into late hours, and I probably undersleep. And so I keep myself pretty disciplined. Now, when I see someone that lacks self-control, the implication to me is that they're not very disciplined. And because it's a trait of mine that I, I probably have developed maybe in excess, right? It's important to be able to relax, right? It's important to be able to be on vacation and not thinking about what your next project is. So it's something I have to work on. But because of that trait being developed in that way, when I see someone that lacks self-control, I might respect them a little less than someone who has some discipline, right? And so I'm, I'm projecting that onto them. So again, I don't think that's an element of my shadow, though. That's just me projecting. And so there's a lot going on there, right? We're very complex beings. Now, if you're engaging in shadow work, one of the things that's most helpful, and I'm sure that you might already be practicing some of these things, is journaling. You know, writing your thoughts down, writing your own critiques of yourself down, analyzing them, writing your dreams down, analyzing those, often in, in our most meaningful and strange dreams. There's, there's symbolic elements there that are reflecting um, parts moving around in our unconscious mind. Also, meditating, participating in things called active imagination sessions. Active imagination is a process that Carl Jung really developed into his method of self-analysis. I released a guided meditation that uses active imagination in this way. You can find it in the podcast feed. Just scroll down to about episode 12, which is the Carl Jung Red Book episode. And right above that, you'll see guided meditation, Jung's digging method. And this explores that kind of experience. It's a meditation where you sit and you start to engage um, a process of fantasy where you interact with your unconscious mind. And I've found that personally to be very helpful with, with engaging some of these things that are in my quote-unquote shadow. I hope that was helpful. And if you have any questions on that, on my experiences, or want to share any of yours, feel free to message me on Instagram at MJDorian. This also goes for everybody listening. If you've gotten to this point in the questions and answers, you get a high five. You're awesome. Thank you. Thank you for your time and your support. So on the next episode of Creative Codex, we'll be diving back into the wild mind and writings of Salvador Dali in a specific book called The 50 Secrets of Magic Craftsmanship. Really wild book. If you want to get a copy before we get to the episode um, later this month, that might be helpful to you. Otherwise, head over to the Creative Codex YouTube channel and see me in video format wrestle with three other fantastic questions asked by Patreon supporters and also a friend on Instagram. So I hope you enjoyed this. Hope this was insightful, thought-provoking. In any case, this has been Creative Codex. I am MJ Dorian. Until next time, I wish you well in all your endeavors. Thank you. Cheers.